I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, good, man. It's、uh, a lot has happened, I think, since I last saw you. A lot has happened. <laughs> I think last time we saw each other, we were we were playing in a in kind of a fictional. We were playing science scientist in a fictional piece or something. Yeah, yeah. I think I was I was making my acting debut, and you kind of like mentored me through that. So I I appreciate I appreciate the guidance. Oh, but it was also my acting debut. I haven't done much acting. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, it has been a couple of years since I saw you last. So, first of all, I just want to congratulate you on the release of the film *Son of Monarchs*, which I believe just came out a couple of days ago. Is that right? Yeah, I think that when we saw each other, I was about to—I、uh, was in what we call pre-production, which was the you know the stage before we get into production. And、um, yeah, it's been about. It's probably been about seven years that I've been working on it, but we shot a year and a half ago. So,、uh, and we just released the film. You know, there's like a there's a way in which films get released, which is changing right now with the pandemic. But it got released into its first festival in Mexico. So, congratulations! I know, I know it's a quite achievement. I remember when、uh, when we were making our acting debuts, we spoke about it briefly, and I was like. Automatically fascinated.、Uh, first of all, the story of the monarchs. I mean, of、uh, like、uh, Dia de los Muertos has always been a, like a festival that I've always wanted to go to, and I'd actually scheduled to go this year with a group of people. And with the whole COVID thing, I've now rescheduled that for next year. But、uh, but it always stuck in my mind. I was like, I need to have a follow up conversation. I know we tried to catch up for a drink a few times after that, and our schedules、yeah. kind of never met. But、um, but this is a great opportunity to maybe follow up on some of the initial curiosity I got there. But from the、um, From the release of the film, I, I know you picked a very specific date. I think it was released right on Dia de Muertos or around Halloween or around that time. Was that intentional? You know, it wasn't. It wasn't intentional, but it was actually perfect timing for the film because the film takes place,、um, especially the. So the film is split into two different time periods:、um, the childhood and then the adulthood. And the childhood parts take place during the Day of the Dead,、um, so it was very, you know, coincidental. I mean, there's a few things about the Day of the Dead in in Michoacan where I shot. Is one is that it's you know it's the Day of the Dead. Two, it's my my premiere also coincided with the arrival of the monarch butterflies,、um, because in in those towns where the monarch butterflies arrive, they're associated with the Day of the Dead, meaning that. The monarch butterflies represent the souls of the dead coming back, you know. So those two things are linked together、um, in the village that I shot in, and、uh, and the third aspect is that the film premiered in the capital of the state in which I shot in. So those are all three factors that were coincidental to some extent.、Um, of course, you know you have to get into these festivals. There's a lot of、um, hoops to go through、uh, to get into these festivals, but.、Um, You know, and of course, it would have been ideal to be there.、Uh, but, but the beautiful part about the virtual—I mean, we can talk about it later—but the monarch butterflies were there,、um, so they were, you know, so somehow representing us, which was kind of beautiful that the human beings couldn't be there, but the butterflies were were just arriving. Actually, I got a bunch of text messages from people saying that when they were watching the film, they saw like the first sightings of,、oh, the, wow. of the butterflies. That's quite profound, and and I know they kind of like migrate from from Canada through the U.S. and then they kind of arrive in Mexico, right on the Day of the Dead or 
almost precisely, right? I don't know if that's changing now with like climates changing or anything like that, but. Um... Yeah, well, that's the thing is that the, so they arrive, so they travel for 5,000 kilometers. Um, they're, you know, they hatch in Canada, in Toronto, um, and then they go through the U.S. and they arrive in Mexico uh, right around the time of the Day of the Dead. Um, there's a convergence, meaning that there's several migratory routes, but they all converge into these what, what are called butterfly sanctuaries, which are butterfly forests in the state of Michoacán, but also in the state of Mexico and in both of those places. They're always somewhat timed with the Day of the Dead, but because of climate change and because of changes in, you know, because of changes in our ecosystem and um, a bunch of other factors um, that have played a role, there's been a shift, meaning that sometimes they arrive a bit later. Of course, you know, we can get into the the fact that they're an endangered endangered species. About 80% of the monarch butterflies have, um, you know, 80% of the population has gone down in the last t- you know, something like 10 years. So, so they're now considered to be an endangered species. Um, And that's obviously due to many factors that involve several countries, right? They involve, you know, the pesticides Mm -hmm. in the U S they involve deforestation happening in Mexico. There's, there's a lot of factors that are, that are um, at play, but a lot of it is human caused, um, you know, climate impact. Yeah, obviously I haven't seen the film. I don't think it's it's out for public release yet. Um, I think it's just doing the festival circuit at the moment. Is that correct? Yeah. So the the way these films, you know, and it, it's been interesting because since the film takes place in a in a village, I've been I've been doing a lot of explaining to the people about you know how films get released uh, because of course it's our you know. It, we wanted to get to the audience as quickly as possible, but, um, but because it's film that has funding and, you know, we're trying to get distribution, we're trying to get it onto major platforms like Netflix. And there's, there's like a traditional route for these films. So the way it works is that the film goes through festivals for about a year. And then it then ideally goes into a theatrical release. And then after that um, it premieres on a streaming platform, like, like Netflix or, or Amazon or, or one of these platforms. Yeah, I know you've got your own platform as well, but we'll talk about that a little later. I am interested yeah. in kind of getting to the nitty gritty of it. I, ha- I haven't seen the film, but I have seen the trailer, right? Yeah, and the trailer I, I, has yeah, been, yeah. got 15,000 views in four days. It's been yeah, man, it's pretty cool. <laughs> like, uh, obviously I was, uh, um, the, the trailer got my attention. So I was kind of like drawn drawn into the story. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the film, but there were certain elements in the trailer that kind of like struck a chord with me. Obviously, I think what's quite unique about you, um, apart from the fact that you're Alexi and you're a unique human being, is that you are a scientist, a PhD, a, pr- a professor that teaches, uh, and you're a filmmaker, a storyteller uh, involved in the arts. Um, and then when I watched the trailer, there was obviously the scientific elements, the migration of the butterflies. Uh, it was fused with elements of kind of exploring identity. And there was a ritualistic element. I don't know. I just in the trailer, there was like he's wearing the mask and then he takes it off and there was like the fire and, and all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of like symbolism and like it, it, it was almost poetic in a sense uh, as well. So I guess I'm interested in that relationship between kind of Alexi, the scientist, Alexi, the, the, the artist or the filmmaker, the, the scientific elements and also the ritualistic transcendent elements and how you kind of reconcile the two. Because 
there is this constant kind of like i wouldn't call it a debate but a, a tension i suppose between kind of the biology and what's transcendent science and religion uh, whatever it might be and from what from what i from the limited um view of the trailer i i i I sensed that you probably touched on a couple of those themes so i'd be interested in exploring that especially that tension between the really ritualistic transcendent elements and i guess the biology of the science you know yeah i mean it's it's a good question i i think a lot of the work that i do tries to kind of demystify that science and religion um, my first film deals a lot with science and religion for example uh, the fly room yeah i saw that um, we'll because talk, it's a we'll, very we'll talk about that in a second yeah yeah it's a very catholic family and and there's a lot of kind of religious undertones but of course it's about the birth of genetics um in this film that was one of the challenges or one of the kind of the um the hypotheses of the film was to try to connect science with ritual right um and to understand that when we are trying to tackle something like identity, there are many ways of seeing identity, right? There's, um, there's a scientific way of seeing it. There's a ritualistic way of seeing it. Um, and I also wanted to kind of show how indigenous cultures and rituals can also lead somebody to be curious about science, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so that rituals can be a way in which we get curious about questions about our identity and about genetic identity. And so for me, a lot of the childhood, for example, of the main character, he learns about traditions, he learns about pigments, um, learns about the day of the dead and the butterflies, and all of that leads him to become a scientist. Um, And of course, in the moment where he's having, you haven't seen the film yet, but in the moment that he's having an existential crisis, about who he is and his identity and where does he belong? Does he belong in New York or does, you know, we all have that as people that have migrated. I'm sure you've had that as well. Um, He turns back to this idea of fusing science and religion and ritual together as a way to kind of understand his own identity. Um, And so that was a big way in which I spoke to the actors, you know, whether they were in Mexico or in New York, there was always this kind of questioning of identity at multiple levels um, and kind of, you know, in the editing or in a kind of aesthetic way, freely going back and forth between, between those two worlds without there being any kind of any hindrance, you know, so there can be a moment where he's looking through a microscope and that leads us into a ritual or could there, there could be a moment where he's, taking something with a pipette, a liquid, and then that brings him to memories of his grandmother um, during his childhood. So there was also this idea that I wanted to connect those worlds, you know, in a visual aesthetic uh, way as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- there's lots to unpack there. I mean, the, the whole concept of identity, identity li- linked with memory as well. I know you're doing some stuff with memory in probably your next film. Um, we won't get into that in too much detail now, but <laughs> Uh, but there is a there, there's a there's a quote or it's a it's a it's a it's a line from a room Rumi you know Rumi the uh, the great um, yeah. uh, Sufi poet yeah. so so it goes along the lines of maybe you are searching amongst amongst the branches for what only appears in the roots right 
So I guess uh, with your main character in this film, he goes away to New York, becomes a scientist, has his career, but he has those elements of his childhood, of the traditions, of the really ritualistic aspects. And it feels like he's coming back, right? I haven't seen the film again, but I feel yeah. like he goes away and then this kind of natural cyclical thing of coming back to the roots. And, and the roots is also, a, it's, it's a very biological scientific concept. Like if you look at trees right. and plants and, uh, and how they grow and flourish, like if you nourish the roots, you have, you have a, a healthy, healthy vegetation, I suppose. So can you see links uh, between the, the, the vegetative world or the animal world and the whole concept of roots and and humans and that return to the beginning that return home that return to to what's familiar right so every every time i i make a film i you know and it, it's something that i do i do somewhat unconsciously so it's not something that i mm. think about and you know every time i make a film it's also kind of an understanding of what i'm interested in but there's always an animal that's like a reference right so whether it was, I mean, I've been, I've been in the insect world quite a bit because it was, it was a fruit fly in the first one and now it's a butterfly. And then, you know, in, in some other films, it's going to be a mouse and uh, related to the memory project. But this idea of a cycle was something that I was really interested in exploring and using the cycle of the butterfly, obviously, the, this idea of metamorphosis, this idea of renewal, also kind of the the misunderstandings of what is metamorphosis, because a lot of people believe that butterfly metamorphosis is creating like a new creature. You know, like you go from like a, a caterpillar to a butterfly, but actually there's a lot in the butterfly. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies that have shown that the butterfly remembers its caterpillar life, but that's for like another story. Um, and that's actually a scene in the film that I cut, you know, because I felt that it was too explicit and I didn't really need to, to include it, but, but yeah, there's this idea that, you know, in order to understand who we are, we have to go to the origin, whether that's the microscopic level, understanding what we're made of, the building blocks, which is in the film, this is what he works on. He tries to understand why butterflies make the colors and the patterns that, you know, why, why they have those patterns and colors. Um, but then also on a, on a, personal emotional level you also have to go back to the origin in order to understand who you are and so you know the film plays around with those two worlds and of course you know I, without revealing too much about the film he he somewhat turns into a butterfly thus the name of the film son of monarchs he in order for him to really understand his origins he has to identify with the migrating butterfly to the point where he becomes the butterfly, you know. Um, and what's beautiful about origin as well, and, and this idea of monarch butterflies is that it's not one directional. You know, you migrate, you go back, but then you return. You know, oh, it's yeah. like a constant cycle. Um, of course, it happens over multiple generations. You know, the monarch butterflies arrive in Mexico and then, you know, they hibernate for a few months and then they go back to Texas and they die and then there's another generation, but there's a sense of, of a cyclical nature to migration. It's not, it's not how we see it oftentimes in films, which is, you know, I'm going to cross the border for a better life. No, migration is something that is cyclical and, and based on temperature, based on, on many other, you know, so I, I love, I love thinking about this, these ideas of origin as being cyclical and, um, 
you know, when you watch the film, there's a, there's a moment during the ritual where they're, you know, just to give you a short synopsis of the film, his mother, his grandmother dies at the very beginning of the film without revealing too much. And so he has to return to Mexico for, for the funeral. And that kind of awakens trauma and family tension and conflict with a brother, all kinds of things come, come to the surface. Um, but there's, um, yeah, I forget what I was mentioning there, but, um, but basically that was kind of this, oh yeah, during this ritual in Mexico, they're mourning the loss of the grandmother and one of his friends in Mexico says, you know, we die, but everything is cyclical. You know, everything goes through different stages and that becomes like a very important part of, of the film actually. And so, um, so yeah, so I think to your point about origin, there were two things. One, studying that at a microscopic level, at a sociological level, at a personal level, but then also this idea that origin is a place that you can return to and it's mm -hmm. cyclical. Yeah, I know from, uh, from uh, remembering some of the personal conversations I had with you, um, I think you look, you look to the animal world for, for wisdom, I suppose. You look, you look at what we can learn from animals. Um, I don't know, there's some kind of inspiration to you, right? Like you, you have this fascination with, with observing the animal world. And then I don't know if you try to draw par parallels with like the human experience or whether you, you have this great divide between that's the animal world and we're completely divorced or, and removed with that or whether you actually try to look for lessons in how the cycles of nature work, the cycles of the animal existence work, works and, and then the human experience and then how that relates to your personal experience as well. I mean, because I'm kind of interested in that. Like for, for me, the whole drive is like, you know, when we were, returning to our nature like uh, even the definition of nature is quite broad and we could probably get into that a little bit but i, I remember from the personal conversations um that animals are, are a constant theme in your exploration and your curiosity and your discovery and i'm just like interested to know whether you look for lessons in uh in observing these animals that that are relatable to the human experience yeah so i mean for one we are all like animals right so you know, so definitely I look, I look for inspiration and, and kind of use the animal as a reference point. Um, I have a class actually at NYU called Animal Perspectives, which is all about trying to um, tackle how we see animals, how we also create like anthropomorphic views of animals, how we kind of project our own views into the animals, what makes us have empathy for an animal versus not have empathy um, why do we study animals in laboratories? Why do we, you know, talking about animal testing, animal cruelty? I mean, there's, there's a lot of topics to, to unpack there, but, um, but I think that one of the main things that I try to do with the animal is, is go back to this idea that we do in science, which we have, we have model organisms. We have animals that we use to study human behavior, human disease. And oftentimes we sacrifice those animals, right? We have to kill them. We have to, you know, we have to do horrible things to them, whether it's a bacteria, a fruit fly, a worm, a mouse, a chimpanzee. We, te we test, we use them because we can't really do experiments on, on humans. But I sort of took that idea into the film world, this idea that 
rather than actually physically harming the animal, I use it as like a, always a reference point and a framework to build personal human drama. Um, so the animal becomes kind of like my, yeah, my blueprint, you know, so I, I kind of turn to it as, as kind of like a spiritual guide, you know, what would the monarch, you know, there's this line from a, a Mexican poet, which became like a big part of, like, as I was writing the script, which was perhaps the butterflies are mute because their stories would be too terrible to share. Um, and then, you know, so this idea that the butterflies have seen it all, right? They've, they migrate every year. They, they kind of see the human despair and the human of the things that we try to do, like build a wall and, and all these things. The other thing that was fascinating about the butterfly is that it became a symbol for activists, for undocumented workers. They all started using the monarch butterfly as a symbol for, uh, for migrant rights, you know, the ability to cross borders. Um, they would actually refer to themselves as we are all monarchs. We should all be able to cross the border freely as, as monarchs do. Um, so yeah, the animal, I, th I think that's kind of the idea, but I also think that there's a slippery slope to that which is that you don't want to project, you know, you have to be careful about this kind of anthropomorphic reflex that we have of always wanting to use the animal as a way to talk about our own feelings. Um, and so I try not to do that. I try to actually give, you know, I, you know, like for example, you'll watch like a documentary on BBC and you'll, you'll see like an animal chasing another animal and you'll have a voice saying like, and the jaguar is about to pounce and about to eat. That stuff really bothers me because it's, 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 use, it's kind of exploiting the animal to speak about you know, empathy and fear and, and all kinds of other things. So I try to always give like a place to the animal. Actually, another interesting thing is that I actually credit the animal in the credits of the film. There's always a moment where I actually you'll watch the end credits of my film. There's a moment where I credit the monarch butterfly and I use its, its Latin name, you know, that Dan Danaos plexippus. Um, and I did that with the fruit fly. I had like a bunch of names of fruit flies that I credited uh, as, as some of the main cast. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, uh, just, just building on that. Um, Cause Disney does this, right? It like humanizes animal. It takes, it, it takes Bambi and gives it a voice and it has all these human emotions that it's experiencing and children are exposed to this, right? So they're looking at these animals in these Disney films or what, and, and they're, and they're, they're humanizing them. Now, I, I guess you can take that from both perspectives. That can be a really positive things in terms of like building rapport or empathy yeah, yeah, definitely. for yeah. the, for the animal. But like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't give them the proper it doesn't give them their proper place or their unique place in the, in the natural world. I suppose it, it, do you think it like it blurs the lines between human and animal experience or anything like that? Can you see that being problematic in any way? Well, I think the, the, our tendencies of, of projecting ourselves into animals happens when we don't understand the animal, right? So there's a necessity to embody it with human emotions in order to feel for it. And I think there, there's some, good things about that. Of course, um, you know, we care more for it. You know, when an animal is endangered, for example, there's like a lot of media around like the last rhino or um, the last line. And we, we create this like, you know, almost like a campaign around empathy 
Like we feel for it, you know, we cry for it. Um, but I think at this idea of projecting human feelings into it happens in moments where there's like almost like a selfish human altruistic need, right? Whether it's creating animations or, you know, or if there's some political or environmental reason. That said, I do think that there there's some good things that happen around that. And I think that caring for animals and I, and I definitely, you know, it's, it's, it's like a two edged sword, basically there, there's some, there's some good and bad to it. Um, in my, in my world, I also feel that we should have the liberty to, so my kind of tendencies of, you know, mixing those two worlds together is that I kind of give the animal a perspective, meaning that it actually, you know, in the fly room, I actually have moments in the film where the flies are looking at the humans, for example. You know, like the camera is actually the perspective of the... And there's the, yeah. there's a scene where the fly is flying through the grasslands and, and you kind of like see... Yeah, the opening scene yeah. in the fly room. Yeah, the opening scene in fly room is 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 the perspective of a fly flying over, over grass. Um, in Son of Monarchs, there are moments that happens... Um, I think it happens mostly at the microscopic level. And then it also happens when he starts transforming into a butterfly that we start seeing kind of more of that connection with, with the animal and, and it becomes fiction. It, some people may call it science fiction. You know, I like to refer to it as kind of science, magical realism. You know, I, I don't consider it as being science fiction because I'm not, you know, if we kind of use the term of science fiction as it's often used, I'm not, I'm not kind of projecting into like a dystopian or futuristic world. I'm actually using elements of what's happening in today's scientific world. And I'm just kind of creating allegories, dreams, landscapes, and all of this is kind of motivated by the character and not, and not deliberate science fiction. And um, you just touched on the, I mean, I, I suppose it's very intentional that you want to give the, the insects or the animal's perspective. I mean, you do that as a creative filmmaker, but uh, as a scientist as well, I think it's a very intentional thing that you set out to do. You want the viewer, the audience to to see a perspective that we would not normally see. So, uh, what, like why? Like like what, what are you hoping to achieve or what do you want the audience to take away with them? Is it just like a cool, funky filmmaker thing or is, are you trying to like get something across about telling this the story of this this particular fly or this butterfly or whatever it might be like why the importance of showing the perspective of the of the animal well no i think i think it's it's ultimately to relate it to to us right to human beings and to topics around identity around migration around um in the case of the fly remote how you know how you can be the father of genetics and yet you can be a terrible father you know, I mean, that's really the irony of the film is that he's a bad father um, and yet he's the father of genetics. So um, the, the animal provides us with almost like a, a way in which we can, we can reflect on our, ourselves. It's almost like a mirror, right? Um, in the sciences, that's how it works. If we want to understand our, ourselves purely at a disease or at a behavioral level, we have to look at the animal, see how the animal behaves, and then we can learn 
about memory, we can learn about disease. This is how most breakthroughs have happened um, you know, since the beginning of, uh, of science. So, um, so it's, it's more than just kind of like a neat trick. It's, it's really using the animal to, um, to think about ourselves. Right, so it's giving um, like an objective objective view of the experience that we're going through at that particular point in time. Viewed exactly, and kind of inter interconnecting the lives of those animals with the lives of human beings. You know, like we 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 share similar behaviors. We we all migrate. We all, you know, there's like similar aspects to to our lives that um, that I want to point out as well. Um, and that we should probably turn to animals more often, especially when we're politicizing or debating um, certain aspects such as migration, these types of things. So that's where I was, we were talking before the beginning of this is that I don't really try to get too political in my work, but I may get political through the animal. You know what I mean? Like I may use the animal and say something about how, you know, there's a line in the film about, um, about um you know about the monarch butterflies migrating every year and, and i'm obviously making a statement about this idea of being able to migrate and um the liberty and the freedom and and the right to do so and um also the fact that when you migrate you live longer all kinds of things that that come up in the film that are kind of like subtle messages about you know some of the current you know things that we're going through and especially now with these elections that that are happening as we speak so <laughs> yeah i think it was interesting that you said when when we migrate we live longer yeah so the monarch butterflies that migrate they live um so they start their their they're born in toronto in march they arrive in mexico in november um they hibernate until march and then they go back um for a little bit of the routes um and they die somewhere like in, in el paso texas but they live around um, almost a year, basically, about mm. 10 to 11 months. The monarch butterflies that are sedentary, meaning the ones that don't migrate, they live much shorter lives, like the ones in California. Um, there's also, you know, monarch butterflies in Japan. It's based, migration causes, you know, higher kind of longevities. Right. So um, tra travel is a thing, man. Migration is important for fitness. Um, also, oh. the other thing that comes to animals is that if you don't migrate, um, what happens is that you inbreed, you know, you mate with species of your same population. And so animals have to migrate for, um, for animal diversity and, and, and genetic diversity and population diversity. It's a, t it's a, an issue called the founder's effect. Founder's effect is when animals are unable to migrate, they inbreed and that causes the species to die. Can we draw lessons from that for, for people? We can draw lessons. Unfortunately, humans like don't seem to ever understand any lessons. <laughs> so we have to keep reminding them that this is happening. But um, no, because it's funny because, uh, go, yeah. go on, go on. Did you, did you no, I think part of my work as a, as a filmmaker is to draw those lines or those metaphors or those connections. Um, and of course, use fiction because I think fiction is very powerful to, to tell stories and, um, and it draws like a, a much larger audience than, you know, than, than maybe some of those kind of science documentaries that you would see on TV.
Yeah, I, I guess I, there is something inher inherently natural to the human experience uh, about stories and how we relate to stories in general. Well, even from a from a mythological like you know. Yeah, everybody, you know, everybody has a different view about this, but I think story is crucial to to really kind of story is like we live in a story, primary... story story world really like like everything our, our created reality is very much a story we tell ourselves more or less no exactly i mean the way we dream our stories even if if some dreams are somewhat irrational like we when we forget things we fill in the gaps uh, and we we fabricate parts of our memory to create to kind of patch up story um we love telling stories i mean that's you know so I think that for me to be able to tell all of these, talk about all of these themes, about animals, about, you know, latest technologies and genetics, about migration, ultimately none of this works if there isn't a story, if there isn't a specific story about a human being going through something, um, you know, in this case, about an immigrant Mexican that lives in New York that has to go back, confront his past, all of this is at the forefront of, of reaching people. And then all of the rest is kind of packaging, you know, it's kind of things that people will pick up. Some people will, will not pick up on it. Um, but the story is crucial. It's kind of like the, the train and everything else goes on, on in the train basically. Yeah. I suppose that you, they can't help but be some resonance from, from, from the telling of a compelling story. Like if, if someone's telling you a compelling story, you could be talking to someone else over there, over here, someone over there. And then all of a sudden you're drawn, you're drawn to it. Right. So there's something inherent within us that kind of like leads us to want to enter this story world, this narrative. And there's also like a, a universality to it, right? Like yeah. stories are universal. You know, you can be, you know, you can be, from the town that I shot in, you can be from, you know, from, you know, I, I had a, a number of focus group screenings where I showed the film to, to many people, people in Abu Dhabi, people in Paris, people in Mexico and, and people, you know, it's always interesting for me because you never know how people are going to respond. But the one thing that came out is that people connected to this, to this idea that they weren't, they didn't belong to one place. This idea that we've all migrated and we all live in, you know, we, many of us, I mean, uh, obviously at different, you know, social class levels, some people migrate because they have to migrate, you know, in the case of refugees, it's a whole other issue. But um, there was this sense that people really identified with this idea of not belonging or belonging to many places. And I think that was, um, that was something that spoke to people whether they were from that culture or not from that culture. Uh, but the story is also a way of tying people together, right? Like if there's a common yeah, story. So the, exactly. So tying people together and understanding that we're multicultural, we're, you know, I can say myself, I'm French, you know, I can identify, you know, that's like a very big topic these days, mm. identifying, you know, am I, you know, in terms of gender, in terms of where I come from, um, it's always interesting for me to hear people state where they're from. You know, they could say like, oh, I'm, you know, in your case, like, oh, I live in Abu Dhabi, but I'm Palestinian. Like, everybody has their own way. You know, I often say that I'm French Venezuelan. 
because I want to hang on to those two identities. But then I also grew up in New York. Um, so I think kind of, kind of this, this hybrid, that's kind of more on the national country level. But then there's also like who I am in terms of, you know, profession and you know, in it's my funny because I, I, I sometimes do this exercise where I get people to introduce themselves without using their name, right? Exactly. Have you yeah. ever tried? Have you ever tried doing that? Um, yeah, I have. I, I often say that I'm a animal whisperer. That's like <laughs> my my Instagram. I listen to animals. Nice. Uh, uh, so that's like something that I, I wrote on my. I was trying to figure yeah, out what right. what would be a great way. And the other thing that I hate is when people say scientist turned filmmaker, this like turned. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Because I don't, I guess I don't necessarily think of myself as a, I mean, I, you know, I have a PhD in biology, but I don't practice biology. Yeah. It, of course, I understand. I mean, I, you know, I, I spent almost a decade working in the laboratory, but, um, but I kind of, never know how to combine those two worlds like biologist filmmaker and so it, it's always kind of problematic mm -hmm. how i it's also like the, 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 the genre of film that you work in it's always referred to as uh, science films or science in films right but but they're just films in their own right no yeah so i think that's a good question i mean i i teach a, my other class that i teach at nyu is called docufiction so right. i'm really interested in blending documentary and fiction but um I was speaking to some students about this. You know, there's, there is a level of marketing, you know, in order to make a film, you have to package it in a certain way. Right. And so I, you know, I what say in a, in a very, what, yeah. What makes you different? Like what's the unique selling point here? Right. Yeah. So I make it very transparent that I, you know, I make science cinema. Um, and I also refer to this term science in fiction versus right. science fiction. Right. 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 Like the, the need to, put more science in fiction. Um, of course, I make films, you know, and I, I have a long debates about what is considered to be a science film and what's not a science film. I mean, I run a film festival where we have these conversations all the time about, you know, would you consider this to be scientific or not? Um, and so I like playing around with those definitions of, of, you know, yeah, what is a science film? It's, it's you know, it's just another type of film. But but, um, and I also came up with this term called science new wave, which is this uh, idea. Is, it's the French new wave, right? In the fifties. Yeah. It comes from the French new wave, which is this idea that, you know, the, one of the ideas of the French new wave was when it started was, you know, many of these filmmakers like Godard, Truffaut, like Lelouch, these people met with economists, philosophers, mm. writers. But for some reason, when we think about the French new wave, we've, we think about it as the filmmakers, you know, they've been attributed, um, but the movements, and they used to have this club where they would meet weekly and have conversations about film and, and discourse. Um, you know, the idea was radical experimentation across disciplines. Mm. Um, and so I think that's really important for science. And of mm. course, I can go hours about this, but of course, science is at the at the birth of cinema. You know, film is a scientific discovery, ultimately. Like the the but the, there the is there is science in everything. Like science is 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 a way of trying to understand the world. No, right. But the the, the actual 
creation, the, like the, the actual the mechanics of it, like, the camera itself yeah, right. was invented by scientists. And then the other thing, and the, the other thing is that the first things that were depicted in, in film were scientific behavior, right? Uh-huh. Like how does a, you know, like the first films from either from the Lumiere brothers or the naturalist in, in Britain, they were, you know, they were doing like time-lapse of a flower. That's like, that's one of the earliest film, like the birth of a flower. So we can't forget that. Um, and I think that science has been kind of niched into this weird, you know, we think of it off, like we, we associate a lot to TV and to Discovery Channel and BBC. And, but there's a lot more of a gray zone um, and a lot more to explore between science and cinema, um, especially more to explore in, in terms of creating like metaphors and allegories and, mm. and including it into fiction. So, Yeah, okay, just going back to the fly room, um, I know in the opening scene, it's set at Columbia University um, and the opening scene, there's like, there's a shot of a motto on the wall, right? It's, I think it's a biblical quote actually and you kind of freeze it for about a minute, not a minute, like a second uh, and then it moves on, but it's speak to the earth and it shall teach thee. Um, all right so, so yeah. I, I don't know if you remember that or not but uh, but yeah, yeah it's it's actually on yeah, the like building it. it's 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 in, it's the inscription in the on the actual building at columbia yeah right but obviously you made a very conscious decision to kind of like have that in the frame you know um and i i mean from again my uh, my personal interactions with you i i and from my own experience as well i mean speaking to the earth or or, or, or what lessons can we learn from from the earth and then I know there's a theme that comes up in a lot of your lectures and, and a lot of your talks with this kind of microcosm, macrocosm, right? So, um, so it's kind of like the microscopic experience, the, the human experience, the universal experience. And, and a lot of the stuff I do that, that like, uh, I have the commentary where, where I sense that the world is so interested in diversity and, and, and the differences between people, but I still sense that there's, there is a common thread that ties us all together, right? There is something there that's below surface or in our essence that, that we're, we're, we're all the same. Like there is this, this commonality. And, and I know you've spoken in some of your lectures about the universality of science. Like it's a universal language in a sense. And there are certain things that we can predict. There's, there are patterns, there's predictability, there's, you know, and then we can get into the talk like nature versus nurture and all that kind of stuff, but we won't go f- that far down. But I'm just interested in this speak to the earth and it shall teach thee and this concept of what are these common threads that tie us all together? What makes humans unique and in that sense? And why are we so fixated with diversity when there are these elements that are, that are universal from a microscopic level to a, like a macro universal level, you know? And I, I'm, I'm just fascinated in that from a philosophical point of view, I suppose. And I guess another question, if it's not overloading you at the moment is, no, no, no. I guess (laughs) people get into the science maybe because they're curious, right? So they want to know how certain things work and the relationships between certain things and kind of draw some kind of meaning or conclusions out of it, I suppose. Um, but, but I suppose philosophers are inspired by the same things, right? Because they're curious. So, so, what individual traits would drive someone to to pursue the science path as opposed to the philosophical path? I mean, from my perspective, it's kind of science speaks to the how and philosophy might speak to the why. But 
I, I'm not quite sure how accurate that is, but I'm like fascinated by your perspective on it. I'm, I am mindful of time and we could probably spend another six hours on this, but, um, mm-hmm. but there's a lot there, right? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think the, the, the main, the main point that I want to kind of uh, like bring home here is that, you know, many of these ways in which we understand the world are connected. So, you know, it's not like, it's, it's not like we choose to be a scientist or a philosopher or an artist and, these are three different approaches to understanding, you know, life. I think embodied in one person, you can have all of these kind of traits. Correct. And that's part of like the new wave. That's the new wave you were kind of talking about. The exactly. And so many of my characters embody those worlds. You know, they can, they're spiritual. They believe in, in the case of the fly room, the father is, is religious. He's, of course, the scientist. Um, he's flawed. You know, he's, mm. of course, he human cheats on on you know there's he has many flaws to him and he's also an artist because he's the one who who draws all of the all of the images in the laboratory so i think that's one of the things that i try to do is that i try to show how all of these kind of ways in which we understand um the world are interconnected um I think the other aspect is that when we study, for example, the infinitely small, or we study the building blocks of life, there's something rational about it. We have to be objective and try to understand the building blocks and how they work, but there's also something emotional about it. There's like an emotional value to it. Um, And that emotional value is equally as important to make discoveries and to, you know, same as being an artist, same as being you know, a priest or whatever, you know, there, there are, there are certain things that make us who we are. Um, and when it comes to scientific exploration that I oftentimes see a lot, a lot of times I see in film that there's this idea that we have to be rational we have to kind of remove spirituality, remove emotion, but actually it's quite the opposite. All of these things have to be associated to it. And if you talk to many of the scientists that have received Nobel prizes. I mean, I've, you know, I just recently spoke to um, the scientist that won the Nobel prize for this genetic technique called CRISPR. And we had large, we had long debates about this, about how scientists and artists think alike and about why she decided to go into the field that she did. So, so these are things that I try to explore in my films. Um, And I try to also go from scientific imagery, like what do we see under a microscope? to dreams Mm. and allegories and metaphors and science fiction and all of that, you know, all of that is kind of interconnected um, in, in the images that I show. Yeah. And just, and just uh, pushing on that commonality, I suppose, and the predictability, um, like there's a universalism because you can only do science because the world is somewhat predictable in a sense. There are certain things that we know about it. I don't know if you want to call them laws or natural laws or whatever you want to call them, but even in the fly room, there's a scene where he's doing the fly dance for Betsy. I think the girl's name is right. Yeah. And he's saying the male circles, the female four times, not five times. Right. So I don't know whether that is actually the case or whether that's just a line in the film. Like the fact that it's so precise that it's four times, not five times, right? Uh, Is that actually true? Well, you know, I like to also play with fact and, and, and kind of not really, you know, flirt with this idea of um, romanticizing, you know, 
yeah, all of it is is more or less true. I mean, the flapping of the wing and how the fly courts the female. Of course, that scene, what's, you know, it's one of the key scenes of, in the film is that as he's teaching her about fly courtship, which is, you know, one could say that there's like a transmission of knowledge, but at the same time, it's highly, um, highly, um, um, what's the word it's uh inappropriate <laughs> if, if you could put it in some ways um it caused a lot of discomfort for the girl actually the opening scene of the film because of the fact that she reacted so strongly to the to the way in which he did the scene and she was you know to her own right very afraid about the way he was behaving i don't know if you remember in the very beginning of the film you see her running away like running to the camera that was actually one of the takes that we did of the courtship scene where she actually genuinely got scared as, oh, wow. as the actress, not as, you know, as the, yeah, yeah. Character. the little girl yeah. playing, playing Betsy. And I decided to keep it in because I wanted to play with this idea of memory and what if she had escaped. And of course, nothing ever happens, but th that's a key scene that mixes this idea of he wants to teach her about science, but in a way, he's also crossing the boundaries of what it means to be a father. And he's, you know, there's no, of course, there's no harassment. There's no child, but there's, you know, it's, it's borderline basically. Yeah. I mean, um, cause, cause the film really was about the relationship between, I think the girl and her father. I think that was the, the one of the key elements of the film and you actually interviewed uh, Betsy in in her older age which and those scenes at the end with the birthday party and everything like that were quite yeah touching. so every every time I make a film I I spend a lot of time just doing documentary work you know mm. spent so the same with the son of monarchs I I spent a lot of time with scientists working on butterflies I I interviewed them with cameras uh in the case of of Betsy yeah I spent I spent almost five years visiting her in North Carolina and interviewing her and learning about her life. And then at some point she opened up about her father, but uh, obviously there were a lot of mixed feelings about mm. it, but, um, but a lot of the decisions about the little girl, about, you know, many of the decisions were made with her actually. Mm -hmm. She was part of a lot of the decisions and she would criticize my work. She would also oh, wow. say like, what, you know, why do you make, why are you making a film about my father? He's, He's not interesting, you know. He was a weirdo. I mean, she would say all kinds of, and it, you know, she's like, "You should make a film about my mother." She would tell me. Oh wow. My mother was so beautiful, and then also she she would tell me, "I don't understand anything about genetics," and then she would give me like very elaborate definitions about genetics. So we understood. I understood that she didn't want to to say that she understood genetics because it was a way of saying that she had a relationship to her father. And, and that's where I realized that this idea of genetics and this idea of also her looking like her father, which is also interesting, tormented her, you know, uh, and it became a big part of the film. And, um, and so all of my films, there's a lot of work that goes into not only the science, but also in the case of Mexico, I spent a lot of time in the village. I, I went, they have butterfly dances. I also kind of 
explore this idea of ritual. Um, I interviewed a lot of locals. Um, I was aware of the fact that I, I didn't want to kind of over romanticize the Day of the Dead uh, because in the 1980s, you know, the Day of the Dead was just people going to the cemetery with candles and offerings. I didn't want to do like uh, the movie Coco. Ah, uh, yeah, which I have seen. <laughs> which is interesting because Coco has influenced today's Day of the Dead in Mexico, meaning that a film that is trying to emulate Mexican culture has almost like reverse engineered itself to actually influence mm. the original Day of the Dead over there. So, which is also fascinating, like the little kids dress, dress up as Coco. But is this like catering or catering to foreign tourists or is this the direction? No, the, the, the embodying. Yeah, the Mexican, the Mexican youth oh, wow. is actually taking these ideas from Hollywood films about their own culture and, and kind of, yeah. And so it becomes part of, and, and it's, you know, it's nor positive nor negative. It's just the way it is. It's like, a, you know, the actual day of the dead that you see now in the media. Mm. I don't know if you know the story, but most of the, the things that you see on the internet, all of that comes from like an original James Bond movie that was made <laughs> uh, where they had a big day of the dead scene in Mexico. And that's when we started talking about day of the dead in Mexico. It wasn't, you know, I mean, you go back to the nineties, nobody was talking about ah, the, it, just, it was just part of the, part of the thing they did. It was, it's a very, you know, and then I interviewed people and I would ask them, so how was, how is this day, you know, in, in the eighties? And they would be like, no, we just, we just go there. We bring our stereos, we play music to, to the deceased. Um, we give them offerings. And of course, in this case, uh, the butterflies, you know, they have like, paper butterflies because the butterflies are are the souls of the dead that are coming back because it, it it coincides they arrive on the same day yeah i mean it's quite incredible and i, I guess the these rich, ritualistic elements even the conversations you were having with betsy the complexity of her emotions and how she felt about certain things and what should be included what shouldn't be included you know why are you making a film about my father should be making like these are, yeah. are these are these like uniquely human conversations experiences or, or can we can we see elements of that in other species like to to that level of complexity or that level of kind of like conflict i suppose or, or do, or do well, I, I just keep it much simpler I, anytime I make a film, I, I, I tend to believe that it's very important to be very participatory, meaning that you're, you know, if you're adapting somebody's life or if you're engaging with people, this is something that you have to really kind of, it's a conversation. And so that, that's a big part of it. I think, you know, it's a good point, actually, how we can actually steal things about animal lives and we don't have to worry about rights or about issues about people getting upset because, because it just, basically it just is right. Like nature, no, just because is. basically animals don't speak back to us, oh. right? They don't actually talk about their disagreements or, um, but I'm sure they, they do in their own way. They, they kind of mock us. And, but I think it's an interesting idea that if you were to film an animal, um, you may have like animal human rights and these people that are making sure that you treat them well, but, you can basically exploit them as you wish. It sounds terrible. You know? Yeah, it is, it is terrible. And so, but when we're talking about people, we have to sign agreements, you know, there are contracts, 
there are things that we can't say. There's also, um, I also, I, something that I also say in some of my talks is um, animals are wonderful actors because, um, you know, to some extent, they're not as self-conscious as, as human beings and they're just less temperamental, you know, and they're just great actors. And I think animals should be included in more fictional movies. Uh, that's quite fascinating. Like I've, I've always yeah. been interested because we are part of this animal world, right? But there is something transcendent about humans, something different about humans that makes us unique to have these types of experiences that, and again, we don't really know if animals have the same experiences or not because we don't, they don't communicate in the same way, the different language, whatever it might be. But, but yeah, I am but fascinated. We treat, them, we treat them oftentimes as subjects, as, uh, as like yeah. second tier protagonists, right? right? Like we're, they're, they're basically brought down to being like our, our basically, you know, they depend on us, right? Yeah. And that's also how we elevate the human experience yeah, by showing yeah, how yeah. animals depend on us for, yeah, rather than being interdependent. Uh, and I mean, that's of, the whole the creation, you know, domesticated animals is uh, all about human su superiority, right? I mean, yeah. I have a cat or people have dogs, but it is a way of, you know, and I may, be contested about this but it is a way of kind of elevating the human individualistic kind of aspect to it and so i think that the idea of making films where you treat the animals at the same level um, or even as like above as like spiritual guides i think is a is really powerful and i and i you know and of course in my next film about mice um it's also very fascinating because mice have been used you know as disney characters like mickey mouse and all these things correct but then at the same time we despise them we hate them correct yeah it's true you know we abhor them like if we see them in in the streets but then we also are enamored by mm. by these like ratatouille for example is is, is one of correct. those films where we yeah, yeah. we love we love them so um so it's fast it's a fascinating creature for that like the butterfly everybody loves butterflies, right? So it's kind of like a very romanticized mm. animal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the whole, I mean, you said metamorphosis. Um, I mean, would transformation be a relevant word in that process or not really? Because I think humans relate it to like transformation, breaking out of their cocoon and then going from like the struggle and getting through the struggle and then having this liberation or this kind of like freedom or like they romanticize that process a little bit, I suppose. Uh, is transformation a, a, an accurate word? Well, I mean, you, you, we have to go back to also like Kafka and, and metamorphosis, right? Like this idea that he wakes up as a, as an insect and, and suddenly all of the, all of the relationships with his family, Greg, Gregor and in, in, in Kafka's metamorphosis, suddenly all of the, the true feelings come out, right? What the what the family thinks of him and how they immediately turn against it because it because it became an insect. And so, yeah, metamorphosis is an interesting word because it it does have this new age type of attribute to it, like this idea of renaissance of change, you know. Um, but then at the same time, metamorphosis um, can also be something revolting like in like in kafka's metamorphosis um in science metamorphosis means at at the butterfly level it means basically that the animal is 
is changing its composition um, and molding into another shape, but it, it never means that it's turning into a, a different animal or it's becoming different animal. It's, Could it be seen um, as like, uh, it's realizing its potential or something along those lines or not? No, it's just like a different stage of its, uh, of its life cycle. It's, it's uh, not, it, there's no hierarchy. Like for example, you know, we, uh, we sometimes think of like the evolutionary tree and we look at monkeys and we say like, oh, we're more, you know, we're more evolved than they are. Yeah, right. Yeah. But actually no animal, whether it, or no plant is, is more evolved. We're just, we all sit at different points of the evolutionary ladder. So you can't, you can never, mm. whether it's thinking of metamorphosis or thinking about our relationship to other species, you can never think of it as hierarchy. Yeah. We've just evolved in different ways and we've adapted to different environments. Um, one could argue that human beings are more complex, but that's a very, very contested idea because there are many, many animals that are co complex in their own way. I mean, one could say that we're the thinking animal, the rational animal, the self-aware animal, the but mor um, the moral animal. No, but I mean, you go to dolphins. I mean, th there's so many contested ways in which, uh, and we think that because we don't understand other animals. And not just that, I think language is the great, um, kind of divider like we we label things in different ways and the way we label them kind of yeah but there are some animals that have very very sophisticated languages you know and very, very sophisticated way of speaking and there are many animals that also emulate you know there was a story about a parrot in um i think it was a parrot in puerto rico that was the only animal that was that was the guardian of a traditional tribal language it actually memorized that language and so they were using the, the, the parrot the parrot yeah the parrot memorized phenomenal and so they were able to kind of study the that's incredible it's it's, it's speech for 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 kind of some clues about the history of tribal oh. languages um i will wrap up in a second there's just a couple of points we'll touch on quickly <laughs> sure sure don't take your time uh, and i know you've been doing like the new wavy thing so i'm just going to do something a little new agey for you um so, so again, the fly room, there's, there's a scene where they're at the bar and that the, there's a party going on and he's having this uh, conversation with a girl about the genetics and then talking about how genetics um, kind of dictate your behavior, how she was yeah. crossing her legs at that point in time, like certain like, like details, yeah. right? So they're like precursors. There's a certain precursors to personality and human behavior even, right? So, so to, to expand beyond that, and I've, I've read like a couple of, I wouldn't call them scientific journals or anything, but just articles, kind of interesting articles um, about this story of kind of inherited emotion. Like, uh, I, I guess in, in kind of sacred teachings, it would be the ancestral wounds, right? Mm -hmm. So can a, a wound be passed on generationally from like a father to a son or like a grandparent through? And, and I, I guess there's a genetic component to that. No, would there be, are we in the same ballpark when I'm talking about that? That's not just like a spiritual thing. There could be a physiological thing associated with that too, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a few things there. One is the, the main character, Calvin Bridges, who was mm -hmm. one of the, the fathers of genetics. He had postulated this idea that behavior could also be something that was genetically encoded. And of course it caused a lot of, you know, controversy because this idea that, you know, behavior is somewhat genetic was, you know, this is in the 1920s, this is between the wars, mm. the rise of fascist, like fascism and the Nazi regime is 
slowly peeking its head. And so these, these were very kind of, these were comments that were also associated to the eugenic movement. I mean, you have to just put it into context. It was, you know, but many of these scientists had said, you know, I'm not part of any of this, of these movements, but they were blacklisted and all kinds of things. But, um, but the way it works in science is that, you know, you have genes are involved in determining many of our traits, whether it be physical traits, whether it be um, behavioral traits, um, things that are passed on from one generation to the other are, are genes, you know, we pass on our genes, but the, basically the lives that we live leaves imprints on our genes. They're, it's called epigenetics. Epigenetics stands for basically markers. It means ab above the genes in, in Latin, epi above the genes. And what it means is that if the way you eat, your stress levels, the way you interact with people, all of this creates little markers on your genes. And those markers, which are called epigenetic markers, if we were to get even more technical, they're, they're called like methylation or um, they affect how your genes get expressed. Mm, you know, your so genes- act Activate certain genes or- Yeah, it activates or represses genes. And those are things that we can undo through meditation and through therapy, but they can also be passed on, you know? And so that also comes to your point about like a wound, emotional wounds. You can pass that on because you pass on your epigenetics as well. You pass on wow. these traits, um, but they're not hard, hardwired as the genes. They're mm. kind of like little markers that can be, you know, with enough work, you can, you can play, you know, you can, have some sort of malleability with those with those things, but that that comment in the film is is an important comment because it foreshadows how we think about genetics today, mm. and to see that those questions that he had postulated in the bar in the twenties in the speakeasy are things that we speak about today about you know using genetics to find a perfect match on Tinder or using genetics to. Um, as a, as almost like a as almost like a a way of explaining why we act in a specific way, like oh, I have this genetic mutation, yeah. so so it takes responsibility more, away from the individual yeah. and, and puts it on the science. Exactly, or I have attention deficit disorder because I have a specific gene, or I have, and some of these things are valid, but the risk is when you become what's called genetic determinism when you say that everything that is that you're doing and the way you act is all because of your genes it's, it's never the case there's always a genetic contribution and also an environmental contribution um, and those are two factors that are sometimes we kind of give too much emphasis into the genetics part um, of things yeah i mean we're not going to get bogged down in this we'll probably do another talk at some point soon but uh but it talks to the point of like the responsibility of the individual free will blah 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 but um i, I don't want to get bogged down in that conversation too much but just a, a quick follow-up on the on the passing down of kind of you know ancestral wounds or whatever it might be do memories work in similar ways like can you pass on memories like can a child remember something that their their grandparents went through that they were not part of like is that is that getting to science fiction no it's not i think memories are, are definitely passed down um i think it's still poorly understood because it, it 
there are, there are so many genes and factors that are at play in terms of these transmissions, but um, it's been shown that there are many types of um, memories are interesting because they're almost like mini stories that we, we pass mm -hmm. on. And, and that's a little bit harder to, to justify, but definitely behaviors and mannerisms, uh, tend tendencies, phobias, all of this can be passed on. Wow. Um, and habits, for example, our eating habits can be passed on. Um, and the way they've discovered this is because some kids, for example, have never met their parents, but they behave in certain ways as their parents, you know, and so, so, so there are ways in which people can study the, you know, the genetic imprints um, or the epigenetic imprint in this case on, on their behaviors and their memories. But memories, it's a whole other debate because memories are, first of all, our own memories get diluted and changed and fictionalizes over our lives because we, every time we access a memory, we change it. Um, there's this saying that the more you access a memory, the more you change it. So the, the memories that you access the least are the ones that are going to remain the purest. So people that have amnesia, uh, some people have some form of amnesia where they can't access their memories. They have kind of memories that are protected, like kept in a vault. If you tell somebody about a story that happened to you when you were eight years old about how somebody stole your bicycle in the park, every time you tell that story, you're changing the story to the point where it's, it's moving away from the, the actual original recollection. And of course, um, you can revert back to the original memory if you had like, for example, like access to video or photograph, you may see it and be like, oh, I thought my bike was yeah, yeah. was red and yeah. not yellow or something. Or I thought yeah, was... I mean that's happened to me once where uh, I got chased by this German Shepherd in Sweden, and then like I jumped off a cliff, and there was like this all this action drama. Felt like a Rambo movie, and then as an adult, I went back to Sweden to the same cliff, and it was like this tiny little. <laughs> I was like, man, this was a huge mountain back in the day. Like, uh, what's going on? So I can certainly see see that being the case i will wrap up in a second um we've kind of like reflected a little bit on your experience the filmmaking the science the storytelling um i guess projecting a little bit into the future without getting all science fictiony about it um <laughs> just want your take on uh <laughs> this transhumanist movement and kind of like uh, elon musk with his Neuralink, right like and even like the the growth of artificial intelligence and what that means for the human experience, if we're, our brains are fused with computers, like what the hell happens there, man? Well, I think <laughs> my take about transhumanism is that we have so much to understand about the, about the brain still that a lot of these things feel very gimmicky to me. I mean, there may be some forms of enhancement, but the, you know, we talk also about the singularity point, this point mm -hmm. where you know, robots or artificial intelligence and human beings will be so fused together that we won't be able to distinguish one from the other. That's kind of, that's what we refer to as, as the singularity um, inflection. My, my take on that is we're, we, we still don't even understand how a virus behaves, you know, such as COVID. Uh, we're very, very far from understanding the brain. And, um, and I think that's like the big project right now is what we refer to as the connectome trying to understand how the brain uh, creates wiring. And so I don't really pay attention to most of that. The, the one thing that I'm most interested in is this idea of 
genetically modifying yourself or taking ownership over your genes. And this comes back to what we were speaking about, which is um, what if you wanted to change your genetic makeup? Um, and of course the Nobel prize was given to this technique called CRISPR, which is a way in which you can modify genes at uh, high precision. And there was a case in China of a scientist that created babies that are HIV resistant. Um, they're called crispr babies and he was sentenced to death. And so this is something that I'm more interested in is this idea of, of kind of taking ownership over your your kind of your identity. Um, but the neural link and Elon Musk and all that stuff, I, I don't really follow much. And I, I think these people are so it, it's, it, there's just too much to, I mean, you, we see it with the pandemic. It's like, you know, it's been over a year now. We still don't understand how the virus behaves and there's so much misinformation about it that, um, that I think that that's going to be, it's going to take a while before we actually kind of plunge into the transhumanist world, but it's kind of in fashion. And, you know, there's a lot of people that also talk about aging and replacing parts of our body with machines so that we live longer and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's interesting, especially with the advent of like genetic modification, like, it goes to the heart of the definition of what nature actually means. Like what is natural, what is nature? Like, um, and I don't want to open up that kettle of worms now because I know we're under well, time I think, I think that, again, it comes back to what we spoke about again, is that in order for us to be, before we tinker with these, these building blocks, we, we better understand them well before we actually embark on things. Every change that you make to a gene or to parts of your body has ramifications to many other parts of your, of your genome, of, of your, you know, of your proteins, your body, your behavior. So I think it's, it's, it's like a very delicate machine. And, and not just that, it's careful. also the way, uh, like humans relate to the rest of the, the, the world. Like it's a whole ecosystem that's inter interdependent, right? So if humans exactly. change radically, then a lot of other things, cause our behaviors change, our habits have changed exactly. changes and it kind of like this. So we are part of this, like one. Creation. Yeah, but we have to we have to understand also that changing, you know, like for example, genetically modified organisms. All the all of these things have been happening for millions of years. So mm. there's nothing different now than I mean now we have the ability of doing it with high precision. But it's it's been happening since the beginning of of mankind. So um, you know, crop selection, all of these things, uh, being able to eliminate genes, all of these things are. There, there's nothing new. Basically, we're not reinventing the wheel in any way. <laughs> no, but the, the irony in that, right? Like things have been changing for years, but there's nothing different. Like the irony in that. So it's there's like nothing the... different, and that that comes down to biology, actually. <laughs> right. Biology so, never... so the more the more things change, the more th they stay the same, more or less, right? Well, in biology, nothing, nothing, nothing is created de novo. Everything that we create is based on patent, like on using old parts and and kind of modifying those. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. No, we're not able to recreate, you know, a new trait or a new gene. Yeah, which is which is what I find fascinating, like this universalism. There is this common thread thread that ties us together, not just tie, ties us together now in our current existence, but across cultures and across time, dating back thousands of years. There are these common themes and traits at a at a sub at a biological or sub biological or spiritual or narrative level that just yeah. endures, you know, and and it'll. It'll, it's endured before you and I were here and it's going to endure well beyond we're gone. It's just kind of, it's just this resistance of this 
world we live in, you know, which is, which, which I find fascinating and it merges the science and the philosophy and everything else. And just the, it's, it's, yeah, like there's, there's a lot, of, there's a lot to be unpacked. There's a lot of films to be made about all this. And, <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. And I'm fascinated by all of this and yeah. And I think there's, you know, if there's one kind of take home message is if we can find ways in which we can deliver science to people and kind of these philosophical, emotional story packaged, you know, films, I think people can understand things about themselves and about the ecosystem that we live in. Um, and, I, you know, that's happening right now with my film, Son of Monarchs. I'm very interested in how, you know, the farmer in rural Mexico, how they're responding to the film and, and what comes, comes out of that experience so that's what we're keeping track of right now is is how they respond because they're the first ones to see the film incredible i think the the point that the monarchs were at the premiere is profound like you you, you the, can the, there's two the, things but, that <laughs> there's two things that were great about this year which i hadn't expected one is the monarchs are there and the second is that i was upset about the fact that it was going to be virtual but actually the virtual aspect of the festival allowed people all across Mexico to watch it in their homes for free, which wouldn't have happened in a festival setting. So we had much more direct access to the audience and to the people. And it was actually, it was also free. People could access it for free for 24 hours Incredible. in Mexico. Incredible. Alexia, I will wrap it up. But before I do, uh, if you want to give the film a plug, your platform, your viewing platform, and you have, uh, oh, I, yeah, I, I, mean, I can I, never I, pronounce that. Is that Labocine? La Bocine, yeah. So La I, you know, I'm a, you know, if we were to do kind of the, the introductions, I'm a filmmaker, biologist. Um, I make science allegorical dramas, uh, but I also run a film festival called Imagine Science, which has been running for 13 years, and um, and I'm very interested in, in film distribution, and we've been running a platform called La Bocine for four and a half years now, which is a science, oriented. Um, film magazine slash video, like video on demand platform, similar to Netflix, and um, and so I've been I've been very involved with kind of building that platform, and it's been it's been really successful and and really important because nothing like that exists right now. And how can people find the platform? How how they can how can they find you? The platform is labo l a b o cine c i n e dot com, um, and so you can sign up to the platform. Um, and we have monthly issues. And then in terms of my work, alexigambis.com, and you can learn a little bit about my work and watch some of my films. But my, many of my films are on the platform as well. So Brilliant. And where, watch them there. where can we look out for Son of Monarchs? For, uh, look Son out. of Monarchs yeah. is just beginning its festival tour. So we're going to have a U.S. festival release sometime early next year. It should be to the public by sometime summer of next year. Brilliant. And to stay tuned, there's a website called sonofmonarchs.com. You can learn more about the film there. Dude, thank you for your time. It's, it was amazing catch, catching up with you. When you're in town or if this thing opens up and I'm in Paris, we're going to catch up for that drink. It's long overdue. We have to catch up, Michael. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> thank, you. thank you so much for your time, man. I really, really appreciate it. It was very insightful. I learned a lot as well. I hope uh, the people listening did. Yeah, I hope I was coherent. <laughs> awesome. Like Love it. Nine no, in mean, the morning after the election here. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's so much more to explore, but like we might do a follow-up in a few months or, or whatever. Let's for sure, for sure. Right. I, I should be back in Abu Dhabi at some point as well. So. All right, man. So we'll we'll make sure we make it happen. Mm -hmm.